Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April the 26th, 2020, and this is episode 2,648 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a good interview for you today. Shelby DeVore is going to be on, and she's just an awesome gal. She's going to talk to us about raising meat chickens in your own backyard. And this show takes on a kind of a special interest right now during this whole COVID thing. And here's why. I'm not saying to run out, freak out, and uh, stock your deep freezer to the gills, buy two more deep freezers and stock them to the gills. I think we can take this with at least a little bit of temperance. But there are at least rumblings right now of potential shortages in the, in the meat market. Uh, due to COVID, for some very odd reasons. One claim is because some processing plants have shut down, and I guess there could be some level of truth to that. And then there's some other things that are going on, where, where farmers are basically euthanizing animals because uh, they don't have any place to send the meat. And one of the problems here, and this is something you have to understand why this could actually be a problem eventually, um, food is not like a lot of other commodities, If I'm GM and I'm making cars and I shut down the assembly line, I can literally shut down the assembly line. There's a chassis sitting there. And I can shut down for a month and I can come back. And it might take me a week to get everything back in place, but pretty much I can push a button and within not much time I can start bolting parts onto that chassis. It sat there for two months and I can bolt parts on it. If you get the meat production market to the point where the animals are kept alive, you can pretty much go back. Chickens are a, a strange thing because of how fast they're produced, but a cow can sit around for a few weeks or months, same with a pig, if the farmer can afford to keep it. If you actually have the animals go away, and they're gone, and you're not starting new ones and even if you are starting new ones if you break the cycle it takes about seven months to raise a pig it takes about 18 months to raise a calf to a, a, a beef cow you can't just turn it back on whatever disruption you've placed in there is as big as that disruption disruption is and you just have to get through it, it it's not manufacturing it's life and that's true of everything in our food supply The things that can be stored easily and cheaply are grains and legumes and stuff like that. We've already seen shortages of those on the store shelves anyway. So I think that this is a great wake-up call to be producing more of your own food. And meat is one of the things that you can produce relatively quickly. And one thing I ain't heard no shortage of is the ability to get meat chickens. In fact, my wife and I were actually discussing meat chickens today and how that might fit into our plans this year as well. So just... Really kind of a good primer for this. Before we get Shelby on, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Safecastle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. These guys have been with us since the very first day that I was willing to take a sponsor. They actually tried to be a sponsor, and I said no initially. And the reason was I only had like 400 people listening to the show when, I first, when they first came to me. And I said, uh, I, I, don't, I don't feel good about this. 
And, and the reason I don't feel good about this is I just don't think you're going to get your money's worth. And I got to charge enough to make this worth doing. And I just said, I'm not ready yet. And, and Vic Frontale over there said, you know what? When you're ready, tell me. I'll still be here. And it was, you know, quite a while later that I came back and said, hey, you still want to do this? He said, yeah, we signed them up. They were the first sponsor. Uh, that was 2009. This is 2020. And they're still here. And they ain't going anywhere. And they give away their discount membership program. That would cost you $29 a year if you anybody else. You get it for life for free if you're an MSB member. So they are just a huge supporter, and they have everything for your prepping needs. Check them out today at safecastle.com. Next up today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Jeff's another long-term sponsor. I, I think he was maybe the third or fourth sponsor we, sh we signed up. In 2009, again, it was later in the year, but it was the same year. Uh, he's been with us since the first year we've taken sponsors. He's got everything you need for your Berkey water filtration systems, including a whole system if you don't have one yet. And the reason you should use Jeff is uh, multifaceted. Number one, he's the Berkey guy. He's the original Berkey guy, the one. I mean, he is one of the top dealers for Berkey in the world. And that means the best deal you're going to get, you're going to get with Jeff the Berkey guy Gleason, too. He's a maniac when it comes to customer support. He will not let you down. He hasn't let any of y'all down. And yeah, it's only like 11 years, he hasn't let anybody down. That's, that's pretty kick-ass. And he's a supporter of the show that you listen to. So check him out. Of course, since he doesn't know anything about Great Berkey guy. Great preparedness supplier. Knows nothing about branding, apparently, because his website for the Berkey guy is directive21.com. Check him out, directive21.com. Remember, in addition to Berkey supplies, he has some other really cool stuff for your prepping needs. Jeff, the Berkey guy, and Gleason. With that, let's uh, let's get Shelby on here. But before we do, let's start out with a quote of the day. Um, I wanted something about the future and the present today. And, and I found this quote by Nietzsche. And it's, the future influences the present just as much as the past. So this is really an interesting thing. I, I actually would say the future influences the present in many ways more than the past. Because almost everything that we decide today, we, we, we do pull context from the past, the things we've learned from the past. But we're really always thinking about the future. We cannot change the past. And the past is unknown. The future is an unknown. So many decisions that people are making today for good and ill are because of uncertainty about the future. And just kind of think about that as we go through our interview today and uh, as you think about building more sustainability and self-reliance into your food production on your own homestead. With that, let's go ahead and introduce our special guest today again. Her name is uh, Shelby DeVore. She is an awesome, awesome gal, animal expert, avid gardener, and founder of the website Farminance. With that, hey, Shelby, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, we got you, got you on today to talk about meat chickens, and this is, this is the Survival Podcast, and we're hearing rumors of potential, potential meat shortages uh, uh, due to this COVID thing. So this is a, a, a timely topic, and it's, and it's something we'd be talking about, talking about uh, even if things, things were normal, I guess, on this show, you know, the thing we talk about, about all the time. I was excited when I saw your uh, guest request come through, uh, when I looked at the outline. I'm glad to have you here today. But what I always, always like to do with a guest, so that the audience can get to know them a little bit, Tell us who Shelby is. Like, how, how did you even get into the world in the first place? Like, take us back to like, like I don't know, spent out in high school, study hall something, and uh, how do you end up being basically someone doing the things things you're doing today? <laughs> well, um, it's actually pretty interesting how I got started. So, I grew up on a small hobby farm in West Tennessee, and I actually lived uh, on the farm that is next door to the house that my husband and our kids now farm. Um, oh, wow. So, 
yeah. Um, so my parents are our next door neighbors, which is is nice most of the time. Um, <laughs> so uh, I was about six years old when we got our first chicken, and it was funny because I think this was the last time that my dad ever told me that I probably could not do something that had to do with animals. Um, so we went to a, uh, there's a small trade days, um, not far from where we live. And it's like a giant flea market, but you can also buy livestock there. So, um, it's a really awesome place to find basically everything. Um, and we used to go pretty frequently when I was a kid and I always was fascinated with chickens and we didn't have any until, like I said, I was about six years old um, because my dad always thought they're going to poop everywhere. They're going to make a big mess. I'm just really not not going to deal with it. We're not going to go down that road. Well, we were walking around one day, and um, there was a black Jersey giant hen that had gotten loose from... Uh, an older gentleman's uh, cage and he couldn't catch her <laughs> and she was running all through the place. People were going after her and um, I looked at my dad and I said, can I try to catch her? And he laughed. I mean, he's looking at all these people, you know, grown men chasing this chicken around. He's like, yeah, okay. If you catch her, we'll get her. We'll buy her. You can have her. <laughs> um, so about 15 seconds later, <laughs> we had our first chicken, and the older man that had her, he said, you know, you caught her, you earned her, you take her home. Um, that was probably one of the best hens that we ever had. We had her for about 12 years <laughs> oh. before she finally died on us, but um, that was the gateway into keeping chickens for us because once you have one you can't just have one chicken you have to get more than that so um i started out uh doing a little bit of um poultry stuff with 4-h not long after i got that first hen whose name by the way was jade and um it kind of snowballed from there so, in high school, I did FFA. Um, my husband and I were actually in the same FFA program. Um, he was the president. I was the vice president. And so, we did all kinds of FFA stuff in high school. And then, when I went to college, I majored in animal and dairy science. And after I graduated with my bachelor's degree... I moved back home and actually took over the agriculture program at the high school that I graduated from. And one of the things that I really pushed while I was teaching agriculture was poultry science. A lot of the kids that I taught, they had chickens at home, um, so they were familiar with them, and it was an easy outlet for us to do really well in competition. So I ended up teaching... Uh, some poultry science courses um, that the kids could get both high school and college credit for. 
And then we were also really active in FFA poultry judging, which really took my knowledge of chickens in general, especially meat chickens, to a whole nother level. So once I got involved with that, um, we actually started really raising meat chickens at home, and um, we've done that for a few years now. And that's something that uh, we've been really successful with. And honestly, once you raise meat chickens at home, you don't want to buy chicken from the grocery store anymore. It's it's a difference in night and day. So. But what made you did you decide to doing meat chicken? First, let me just say that that was the uh, the most interesting, creative, and Somewhat strange story I've ever heard about about hate your first chicken chicken ever. <laughs> Most are like I decided I wanted a chicken. I ordered more. I went to Tractor Supply. I went to Atwoods. I went to the, to the feed store. I chased a down a jersey in the middle of a, of a flea market when I went. Best story on chicken uh, start starting ever. But 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 once you go from like like most people that keep keep chickens do not. In general, do meat chicken. Most most people backyard layer layer flock. Maybe you call out your older hens. So what made you make that jump? So, really, okay, so let me backtrack a little bit. Um, I spent uh, two years when I was getting my bachelor's degree working in the meat science lab at Mississippi State University as a student worker. So, I got really familiar with um, harvesting and processing animals into meat products And it was something that I did on a daily basis, and I actually found I really enjoyed it. Um, being an animal person, when I first started working there, I thought, eh, I don't know how much I'm really going to be into, um, you know, slaughtering cattle or pigs or chickens or whatever. Um, but there's a lot of science into it, which piqued my interest, so... When we um, moved back home and started our farm, we started with egg-laying chickens. And it was really easy for me to say, you know, I've done this before. Why don't we raise our own meat chickens, try to be a little bit more sustainable, and we can just process them here at home. It's something that, you know, I spent two years doing. Why not? Sure. So. That's kind of how we got started. Um, a lot of people do see it as a big leap from egg layers to um, meat chickens. And really, the only difference, is, I mean, there's not much difference in actually raising them. The hard part comes when you go to slaughter them and process them. You know, if you don't understand what you're doing, that can be a little bit of a jump, but it's definitely something that is totally doable and something that I think anybody can learn how to do, and you just get better the more you practice it. So it I mean, wasn't I, a huge I'd agree with that. I think it's actually easier in some, in some ways, um, the raising thing, because it ends. Right? I mean, yes. like, you're done, done. You bring a meat chicken group in, you get a couple months, and then, then you're done. And if you raise enough for half the year or for the, for the whole year, you're, you're done next year or you're, or you're done for months. And you, you can time it. And, like, I don't want to take care of animals during, like, like, like Thanksgiving to Christmas. I don't want to do that. I don't know about you. I just don't want to. 
Um, I, I'm not um, professional. I, I, I don't. I don't do it for money, and I kind of have down down during then with my family. So I, I. But if you want, you want ten, and I think that's what's cool. Chicken's a relatively short cycle. But you can set that into your your lifestyle and be done when you don't want to want to be done with it. Or like like in summers. Like I don't really want young birds in in August here. It's a billion degrees. So you can can do, do that where you're late. You're laying flock. You got to take care care of all year. Exactly. I agree with that 100%. Um, the summer here is, and the winter, we don't get a bad winter here, but it's rainy, it's always wet, and you don't want to go outside yeah, and, yeah. and mess with stuff if you don't have to. So, yeah, I agree with that 100%. It is a great way, I think, for someone to transition into raising livestock because it does end. And like I said earlier, the end product that you get when you raise meat chickens at home, I mean, there's not much that compares to that. So it's a really good way to sucker yourself into raising more livestock in the future because you can see um, the benefit of that pretty quickly compared to some of the, the other species that you could raise. So. Now you had, you know, more relevant experience than most people do this. But how did how did your first time go? Like like the first time you raised chickens, what what was that like? Was it anything about it you didn't expect? Were there any things that came that came that you kind of you know you know really didn't foresee, or did it just go pretty pretty well? Well, yeah. So um, I'm a person just like anybody else. Even though I had tons of experience and tons of education, there's still a learning curve. So the first time that we raised meat chickens, um, we decided we were just going to do 10 uh, Cornish crosses. We were going to try it out and see how it went. Um, one of the things that we did with those was we kept them enclosed um, in a fairly small space, like the minimum spatial requirement for Cornish crosses. And... Um, we realized that they're super lazy. <laughs> I mean, you you read that they're going to be lazy, and you think, okay, yeah, they'll be lazy. No, we we didn't take that to par. They are <laughs> they are ridiculously lazy. So um, the ones that we raised laid on the ground so much we actually had them in a uh, um, a cage that had like a wire floor don't ever do that terrible <laughs> idea because they will rub all of their breast feathers off yeah and um, they ended up with I wouldn't say sores but they did have some um, scabby tissue on their skin so when it came time to harvest them we ended up cutting all of that off and you really want to keep the skin on them when you put them up in the freezer. Um, you know, they tend to, the carcasses tend to last longer with the skin on them. So that was something that um, was kind of a hard lesson for us. And uh, my husband, of course, he he's all about the agriculture stuff that I want to do. He doesn't have the background that I have or the education that I have. So sometimes when stuff goes wrong, he's like, why didn't we do this a different way? 
like, you should have known to do this in a different way. And I'm like, well, sometimes you just have to trial and error and figure out what works and what doesn't. So that was definitely a trial and error. But since then, um, we've realized, obviously, give them a little bit more space. Do not put them in something with a wire floor. And we really haven't had issues with them since then. So that was that was kind of the main the main issue that we've had, and probably looking back on it, it was just a minor thing. I know some people have issues with water belly or ascites, you know, and different growth related issues, but we haven't had that, so we've been fortunate. Is, is there anything else maybe you would do differently this time time around the first time? Um, so something that we tried, uh, this past fall was we actually raised, um, Cornish crosses and red rangers with our egg laying flock. So right now we've got about 17, um, egg laying hens and they free range. We've got 14 acres and they kind of get a run of the land. I know, you read a lot of places that Cornish crosses crosses are lazy and um, they're not good foragers. So we wanted to go a little bit more naturally this last time just to see the difference in growth rates and uh, the carcass quality at the end. So we raised the Cornish crosses with the Red Rangers, which are really well known for... Uh, their foraging ability. And what we found was really our Cornish crosses didn't grow that much slower. I think there was a difference in maybe three or four days in the time that it took them to reach uh, harvest size. But we didn't have the feed costs that we had when we kept them enclosed and we were just pouring feed to them every day. So when they were out with the Red Rangers, they wouldn't go as far as the Rangers did, but um, they would leave the coop and try to forage and um, act more like a real chicken. <laughs> sure. Well, Cornish crosswood that is kept in an enclosure. So after we experimented with that, we were really happy, and I think that's how we're going to go um, in the future is probably raise the two of them together and cut our feed costs just a little bit more, but still have a manageable flock that reaches a good harvest size. So when you're doing that, do you have like, have like a fixed coop where they kind of got to go or, or do you have like a, like a mobile coop where like, you know, that to me, if I'm going to do that, and I want to get them to forage more, or an idea of like a small coop on wheels, and they they go to bed for the night, and then the, and the coop moves, and when they wake wake up the next day, come out. Um, well, well, you're in, you're in a place. You're at least going to, going to an area to forage because yeah, they they they're real excited about about doing any, especially you know you know in about seven weeks and, and slowly plump up, plump up just. Right. Sit here and shove, shove on my gullet. They're doing what they're designed to do. That's what they were bred, bred to be. Exactly, exactly. So, um, our setup 
is we've got a fixed coupe, um, and it's got a, I would say, a 14 by 16 um, run that's attached to it. And we've worked really hard with our layers that we have um, year-round to train them to go into the coop on their own at night, which for anybody that doesn't know how to do that, it's really simple. Like, if you will feed your chicken scratch grains into the run and then close the door behind them in the evening, you do that a few nights, they're good to go. They automatically know to go into the coop to roost at night. So when we raised our meat chickens with our egg layers, we kept the meat chicks separate um, until they were large enough that I felt they weren't going to get picked on or trampled by the older egg layers that we had. And I think with our Cornish Crosses and the Red Rangers both, when they were about two weeks old, we took them out of the brooder and let them start going with the older chickens, which we raised them when it was still warm outside. So it was, uh, the temperature wasn't an issue for that. But, um, they had the ability to go with the older chickens. And where we live, um, our house is kind of in the middle of the woods, <laughs> which is great for our chickens that can go crazy digging through the leaves and eating insects. Um, so they would go out in the mornings with the egg layers, and then we would put them up at night um, when the other, other hens went up to roost. We did notice um, with the Cornish crosses, like you mentioned, when they're about six or seven weeks old, they got to where they weren't going as far, and they just kind of wanted to hang out around the feeders inside of the run, which was fine. So we just kept the feeders full. If they wanted to hang out in there, that was cool. We left the door open. If they wanted to try to go out and forage a little bit, they could do that also. So there was a little bit of a drop-off once they really start to <laughs> start to put weight on where they're not leaving the coop quite as much as the egg layers and the red rangers that we had. So, I mean, you raise meat chickens, egg chickens, alongside tur- turkeys. How do you manage kind of raising all three of those classes of birds at the same time? Um, carefully, (laughs) that would be the, the best way to describe that. So, um, I know when you read online, there's a lot of mixed information about whether you should raise them all separately or whether you should raise them all together. So I mentioned earlier that our egg layers, they kind of have the run of the land here. So we're on 14 acres, and they come and go as they please. Um, we do have a coop that, you know, we shut them up in at night. But when we start meat chicks or turkey pulp, we actually start them in a brooder that is located inside of their chicken coop. So we converted an old shed that is, I believe it's 
like 25 by 12 or roughly um, that we can our chicken coop. So there's plenty of room in there for a couple of brooders. And um, it's interesting when you get Cornish crosses in the mail as chicks, you really don't want to put them with your egg laying chicks. So egg layer chicks are usually a little bit more timid. They're a little bit smaller and the Cornish crosses are, they're big. They can be a little bit rough. Um, they're a lot bolder than the egg layer chicks. So you want to keep those two groups separate while they're small. If not, the Cornish crosses can trample the egg layers and um, eat all of the food up before the egg layers can get to it, and it's, it's just not a good situation. So when you throw turkey poults into the mix, turkey poults are going to be a little bit larger than your Cornish cross chicks when they come. Um, but they're a little bit more timid than the Cornish crosses. So it kind of equals out the size difference between the turkey poults and the Cornish crosses. And for the most part, we've been able to raise our meat chicks and our turkey poults in the same general area. We do give them um, a lot more space when we're raising them together. And that way, if there are some issues, they can kind of get away from each other. Um, but I can really only think of like two instances where we've actually had to completely separate the two groups. So the hardest part is managing them all when they're young because you do have to make sure everybody's getting feed, everybody's getting water, everybody's warm enough, and nobody's getting trampled on. It really gets easier the older that they get. So um, I've read where some people have had issues with keeping chickens and turkeys together uh, and the turkeys developing disease. We haven't had that issue. We've raised chickens and turkeys together for, I guess, about six years now, and we've never had a turkey that developed blackhead disease. So I'm not sure if it's because of the way that we raise them in more of a free-range environment or if it's because we're really picky about where our birds come from and make sure that we're only purchasing chicks and poults from reputable breeders that aren't going to have a high instance of disease anyways. So, it, and it could be a combination of the two, but um, for us, managing them all together has been a whole lot easier than trying to micromanage everybody in different locations at the same time. Very cool, and it probably probably is a combination of those things, things because they're all good practices. Uh, I, I know you did a lot of teaching, and for a while you were really active in teaching within within the police scene. And you you did a you did a lot with you know trying to get kids kids. How did how did you get kids involved with poultry? It actually doesn't seem seem to be a very thing to excite, excite about animals really. 
So actually, it's not difficult at all. <laughs> so I think um, a lot of the interest comes from the fact that chickens are small. They're easy to handle. They're not intimidating like, say, cows or horses or sometimes even goats and sheep, you know, can get pretty large and can become intimidating to a kid that hasn't spent much time around animals. Um, and plus, when when I was teaching uh, poultry science classes or poultry judging teams, the kids learned so much more than just what you think they would learn. Like, we didn't focus on just breeds of chickens or the parts of a chicken. There's so much more involved that the kids can do hands-on. So um, we learned, or I taught them how to candle eggs and grade chicken carcasses and how to disassemble a carcass and, you know, choose the best breeding animals uh, for either egg or meat production. And since they can do so much stuff with that hands-on, they, I mean, I had kids signing up for it in droves. It was, it actually ended up being our most popular uh, topic that we covered. And I think a lot of it was because the kids can actually do that stuff. So when you talk about harvesting a cow or processing a cow carcass, that's not something that you can just do, for the most part, in your backyard. Most people don't have the equipment or the coolers or the saws to process a whole cow. But when you talk about processing a chicken, that's something that you can do with normal stuff that's in your kitchen. If you have a good sharp butcher knife, you can do that. And it made it a whole lot more accessible for the kids, and I think they really enjoyed that. It, it takes it to a whole different level when you can actually practice what you're preaching and not just reading content from a textbook. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. And I do think it, I think it is something that can get kids involved with. It's a lot less intimidating. and You can always start out with kids, kids with picks with you know, you know, baby chicks. That's that's like my granddaughter was hip on the chickens themselves, but the babies, like oh, oh, okay, and then and then and then it kind of go from there. And being able to take it all, get all the way through, able to do it in a backyard, I think that's that is a, is a big thing too. Uh, you've taken taken this experience with poultry and all your other stuff. You put together together a and if I say it wrong, I'm sorry. Farming minutes, right? Yes, farmanence. Can you tell us a little bit about, a little bit about that? You, you've taken the poultry stuff and stuff into that, maybe some other things, other things. That's exactly what that, that side, side is all about. Yeah, so um, I've always been, I guess, an agriculture advocate. And I'm also a nerd, so hmm. I'm one of those people that I can't, be satisfied unless I'm constantly learning something new and then I feel like I need to share that with people. So, um, for example, when I was 
finishing my bachelor's degree and my master's degree, um, my husband used to joke that he also got a bachelor's degree and a master's degree because he said every time you come home from a class or a lecture or a presentation, you have to lecture me and teach me what you learned. Sure, sure. And um, so it's always been something that I'm really passionate about. I didn't realize I was as passionate about teaching people about agriculture until I started teaching. And then something clicked, and it was like, okay, I really enjoy providing people with this knowledge that I have. It's not enough to just have the knowledge for myself. I feel like I need to share it with people. Um, And it really struck a chord when uh, one of the first semesters that I was working as an ag teacher, I remember asking a class of high school kids who, let me remind you, I'm from a very rural location in West Tennessee. Most of the kids that I taught had gardens or their parents farmed or they had livestock, they had cows, they had row crops. Um, But I remember asking a group of kids one day, where do eggs come from? And one of the kids responded, the grocery store. And I said, no, no, like, let's take it a step back further. Like, where where do the eggs actually come from before they make it to the grocery store? And I wish I could say I was kidding when the student just looked at me with a blank look on his face like he was clueless and I was thinking this is not okay (laughs) that you that you don't know where eggs actually come from so um, of course we had a discussion about the fact that eggs come from chickens and we settled that pretty quickly but um, after that there were several other instances where I was really shocked that people in general don't know where a lot of their food comes from. You know, if you ask a lot of kids today where chocolate milk comes from, they're going to tell you it comes from a brown cow. (laughs) And they're, they're serious about that. They do not know that you get regular milk from cows and then add chocolate to it later. So... That was some that was something that as somebody that's really interested in all things agriculture, it really stressed me out. Like, why do people not know where their food comes from? Why have we lost touch with that so so much? So, um I decided that I would start a blog in 2018 and um, just as a way to not only probably not talk my husband's head off about everything (laughs) agriculture related all the time but also to reach 
people that were general, genuinely interested in agriculture. Because as much as I loved teaching high school kids ag, there were a lot of kids that I had that, you know, just it just wasn't their thing. And that was difficult for me as somebody that's really passionate about it to wrap my head and go, why do you not think this is the coolest stuff ever? <laughs> so when I started my blog, it was a way for me to get the word out to more people, help more people that were really interested in agriculture and really connect with those people that are like me. And they're like, Oh my gosh, this is freaking awesome. Like I can't get enough of this. So that's where it started. And, um, it's really snowballed from there, which I'm, I'm really thankful. Um, I've been able to reach people in countries all over the world and help them with stuff that to me, you know, is a simple fix, but they may not have the knowledge or the access to the knowledge to know what that simple fix is. So it's been something that, um, I'm really proud of, and I'm really glad to be able to say that I've been able to help people and get the word out more about being a little bit more self-sufficient and raising animals, or whether it's chickens or goats or cows or whatever they're interested in raising at home. You know, you know, there's there's something to the, the entire concept of teaching, teaching motivate student, and um, like kind of one of one of the ancient traditions in, in, in martial arts in the far far east was you didn't didn't you didn't go to a teacher and say I want you to I want you to teach me. You just showed showed up, and and you tried long enough, you might actually earn the right to be a student. So that literally right. that teacher had no one, no one who didn't didn't want you there. And it wasn't good to be in right. there and hadn't basically paid the tuition through participation to the point where the, te the teacher identified this student is, is actually my student. And, and the prob problem, one, I, mean, I beat up on education a lot, but one, but one of the problems that teachers have, have to be fair with teach students in, in our public education system is the sensory. They're taking the taking the courses to take to get through your class, and, and that's just that's just I don't really want to be here, but I got got it. This seems better better than that, so I'm picking this as my elective, right? Even in electives, you deal with that. So what you kind of did is say, well, I want want to do this, but I want to want to team motivated, and so you kind of moved into this old, your own world. So that's that's how online teaching works. Like if you want what I have to offer, podcaster, yester, you come to me. I don't go to you, and it doesn't mean that I'm not accessible. It doesn't that I don't want my stuff there but it means i'm really only interested in talking to the people that want to hear what i have to say and and that is so you can do today in a way like you, you've never been able to do before like those days of the martial arts stuff i'm talking i'm talking hundreds of years ago and all and, all, and you know this guy might be at a place every day and, and go go through his forms and people would show up and he would select students out of them uh to today you can actually put put out whatever you want And anybody that really wants access to it eventually can find you and partake in what you have, what you're teaching, teaching motivated. Exactly, exactly. Um, it was very frustrating when I will say that 
the majority of the kids that I taught, for the most part, wanted to be there. It was an elective, so they could choose whether they wanted to take my classes or not. And um, the program grew while I was there, and a lot of the kids did mention to me that part of the reason they enjoyed taking my classes so much is because I was so excited about what I was teaching Mm -hmm. that it made them excited about it too. But with that being said, there's always, you know, that handful of kids that I would have that it didn't matter what we were doing, they didn't want to be there. And that's really frustrating, you know, when you're, super excited about something and you look at a child and they're just looking at you with a blank look on their face like can you just go sit down I really could care less yeah yeah it's a, that's that's a military thing. like one of the struggles you have with let's say information is you have to the speed of the slow man and that can make things things challenging at times you know you know um in this case, you're running, running at the slowish man who, man who wants to go birds. You know, <laughs> just wants, wants to go the other way, wants to go home and eat donuts or something. And yeah, it's it's kind of cool what you've built. And you have a really really great um, social media. Since I was checking out out your during your Instagram, your Pinterest, uh, um, and it seems like you've you've done a lot with it as well. And again, I guess it's helpful that like all this, all this is so visual. Well, good. I'm glad. Um, I really my overall goal is I just want to share all of this knowledge. You know, I've I'm been fortunate that I have over 20 years of experience gardening and raising animals, and I've got a bachelor's degree and a master's degree. So I've got the experience, and I also understand a lot of the science behind it, which is unique, um, kind of in the homesteading niche. A lot of people just up and decide, hey, we're going to get chickens or we're going to start raising goats or let's start growing a garden. And they don't have all of the knowledge in place that I have. And I don't say that to belittle anybody that has a lot of experience or they've done it, you know, from the ground up. I just think it gives me a unique perspective and... I really want to share that information with other people in a way that's helpful. So that's kind of my overall goal, I guess, for my business is I just want to help. You know, if somebody wants to start a garden or start raising chickens, I've got the answers probably to the majority of your questions. If I don't, I know where to find them. (laughs) Absolutely. And and I mean, content creator, we live... For a question we don't already have have the answer to, because now we have we have new content, and now we can exactly. find, it, find it for you. Because we don't know, we can't figure it out. We probably know somebody who knows, who knows or we at least know some know some somebody that knows. That's kind of how you build build this presence. So I'll make sure I have links to your website, um, your Twitter, Instagram, all in the show notes today. As we wrap, we wrap up, is there any advice you could give to someone who wants to get started with sustainable poultry? Free? So my best advice is don't wait. Don't overthink it. If you're interested in raising meat chickens or egg chickens or turkeys or quail or 
whatever you want to raise, get the stuff that you need and get started. It doesn't matter how much you research, there's going to be a learning curve. Just like I had a ton of experience and knowledge and a degree, the first time we raised meat chickens, we still learned lessons. So there's there's not going to be a perfect way to enter the poultry industry. You just have to get out there and do it and figure out what works for you, what doesn't work, and then the first time you do it, figure out your mistakes. The second time, it's going to be so much easier. So just don't wait around. Jump on the ball and get started. I agree with the just do I What I would add is like, you know, go to a site first. Learn what you need for, for brooding. Learn what you need to control, contain, feed, water. Do all that before you eat the birds. That's that's like that's the, the, the you know that is the one thing with this do it you just do it, but get all the stuff before you get the birds because you don't know what you don't know and you'll probably probably forget something but at least you'll have most most of what you need. My other thing is I would say and I bet you agree with this. Start small, like. Go run 100 meat chickens on just run, especially especially if you've never raised chickens at all before, because that's all that's all just involved volume alone. That's a lot of meat, meat, a lot of storage space. You know, then two does, does something like that and, and give some away and what what have you, and, and get your get your feet wet, and then you can go from go from there. Exactly, I 100% agree. Um, when we started, we started with 10, and at the time. That felt like a lot of meat chickens. Now, 10 meat chickens is nothing, but we've done it numerous times. So, yeah, I agree. Starting smaller is probably probably a really good piece of advice. Don't go out and purchase 50 or 100 meat chickens if you've never owned chickens before because you might lose your mind. <laughs> you might lose your mind. And, again, I think people get shocked, shocked, and you see what – but 20 chicken chickens process looks like in volume, you know, especially if you don't break them down. If you do them as whole birds, just just go to the store, store and get a chicken and imagine 20, 20 of them side by side. And do I have a place for all that to go? That's just a, a piece of the, the thing there. And, and other than that, man, that, I completely agree. Just, just do it. Um, I actually think that one of the easy starting entry points is, is the flock. But as we finish up, just kind of a thought on that. Chickens have huge feed debt, debt first egg, and it's a long time. It's it's only two to twenty four weeks before that first first egg pop of a chicken butt. Um, you you can run two and a half ish runs of meat in that same period of time, and so so you're looking to, to do something that thing that puts food on the table. Uh, you will do you'll do it with meat way faster than with egg. I agree for sure, for sure. All right, Shelby, Shelby, well, I appreciate being with us today. Again, the site is Farm and Eminent. It's F-A-A-R-M-I-N-E-E-N-C-E.com. Check it out. I will, have, I will have links in the show notes notes along with all of Shelby, Shelby's social media. Yeah, you're definitely going to want to hit her up and follow her on whatever, whatever social media you use, Pinterest, Twitter, or Instagram. And Shelby, again, thank you for being with us today. Right. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. 
All right, folks, and with that, uh, I hope you did enjoy today's interview with Shelby. I really, really did enjoy talking to her. And uh, as we wrap things up, let's uh, remind you guys a couple ways you can help support the show and the work that we do here. Uh, number one, you can do your online shopping at tspaz.com. I call it the painless way to help us out because you're probably going to buy stuff online in the next month or two or week or two or day or two anyway. So all you got to do is just go to tspaztspaz.com before you shop. Start there, and no matter what you buy, you will eventually help us out. However, uh, you will see all the items of the day that I review, and if it's there and I review it, I use it, I own it, it's mine, uh, I would buy it again. If I wouldn't spend my money on it, I wouldn't ask you to. And today's item of the day is one I've brought around a lot this year, uh, and since late last year, all through this year, it's been one of the top-selling items off of T-SPAS, and it's the Barina LED Grow Lights. And I'm bringing it back for... One big reason, and that is I keep getting emails from people saying they're not available anymore. What can I buy instead? Well, I do have some alternatives for you in the write-up today. And you can just look up the write-up today, and you go to the Survival Podcast or T-SPAS. You can really quickly find uh, recent posts and see uh, the Barina LED grow lights and six-packs. Um, but here's the first thing I want to say. They are available. This whole they're not available thing I don't understand, but maybe I do. So I had listed where you can get six-packs or four-packs, and it seems like Barina has stopped doing the four-packs, which they didn't originally have, and they have raised the price a degree. For instance, when I first started listing these, the six-pack of four-foot lights was $100, bucks and now they're $115. Let me explain something to you about that, though, about how good a deal that still is. Two years ago, one of those lights... Now, I'm not necessarily saying Barina brand, but one light of this specification, 42 watts, um, four foot long, T8 replacement, LED full spectrum, would have cost you somewhere around $50 to $60. A two foot one would have cost you around $40 bucks for one light. You can get four, I'm sorry, six of the two foot lights for $69, or you can get six of the four foot lights for $115. The, the world has changed in this, this, this realm of technology. And these lights are amazing. And what There's nothing you can't grow with them as far as I'm concerned. Um, and so they're just a good deal. Now, the other thing I – so first, I, again, they took away the four, four packs. I had four and six packs listed in my write-up. I removed the four packs. So I think some people were like, oh, I only need four. And they were, they were not finding them. They were only finding the six packs. The other thing is that um, – Some people, I think, are just seeing the delivery date, and they're just saying, well, I'm not going to do that, and they're saying that means they're not available. And you'll get ship dates out, like right now, of like uh, May 15, and this is April 28. Uh, this goes back to something I told you all earlier this month. Don't let that scare you. First of all, I'm seeing over a week increase in shipping time just by being logged in with an account with Prime versus not with Prime. I mean, that alone... Tells you something. So if you're a Prime member, uh, you're getting priority right now, it seems like, at least in what they're promising you. But beyond that, almost anything I've ordered, I mean, almost anything I've ordered off of Amazon in the last six weeks, no matter when they said I was getting it, I got it within two to five days. No matter if it said 45 days, I got it in two to five days. As long as it didn't say something like in stock on. If the item is in stock, you're getting it relatively quickly. Now, I've even got some that don't ship directly from Amazon, and Amazon will you know, put like a five-week lead time on it or something like that. But the next day, it shows shipped because the vendor shipped it. 
if they're not shipping from the Amazon warehouse. And then that might take a week to get to me, depending on the mail service. But I just don't let that dissuade you. Um, because even on Prime, it's, it's only quoting um, May 14, which is, what, about 17 days right now. And if you are building a project, you better get them. You know, you're gonna you're gonna need them anyway, and you might want them faster. But I'm, I'm telling you right now, you're gonna get the stuff quicker with one caveat. One caveat with Amazon. I don't know how that applies if you live in Jabip, Oklahoma, or out in the Nowhereville, Utah, or Sheboyganville, Indiana, or something like that. I don't I don't know that that is true in your more minor markets. I live just outside of DFW. I am in the DFW market. It's 7 million people. So if you're in a major market or real close to a major market where you know you're getting your shipments out of those warehouses, I would just not sweat the delivery time. And if it ends up really taking that long, if you give it a couple days and it doesn't ship, you can always cancel your order and get your money back. So don't be afraid to order. The other thing is some of them you know, are selling out from here and there at times. So I give you in the write-up several different options. One's by a company called Bayingo. Uh, there's a couple other companies that are making these. They're not even making these same lights. They're buying these same lights and putting their name on them. And, and that's what goes on a lot of this product out of China, Taiwan, etc. Um, a company sees it selling well. They go to the manufacturer because the manufacturer is not the actual seller and says, hey, can you make those for us? And they're like, yeah, you, if you order 2,000 of them or whatever, sure. I could be in business selling Spirk Oingo grow lights in a few weeks. Well, right now maybe it would take a couple months uh, to get them with my name on them and everything printed up. But, but, I mean, it would be the same light. I'd have to make a hell of a lot more than I do as an affiliate for that to be worth doing. Um, but I could be doing it. They'll do it with anybody who will buy enough and, and have enough shipped. So I give you some that I'm almost 100% are the exact same lights in the write-up. But I want to tell you how you can do this for yourself, especially when it comes to electronics on Amazon. If you look and you see the following, the specs are the same. Not close, but they're the same. Wattage, hours, etc., all that stuff's the same. The quantities are the same. The packaging's the same. The form factor is the same. Um, and the accessories, the little gadgets and gizmos that come, if they're all identical, the odds that those are two manufacturers sourcing two totally different products are about a, I'd say at least ten thousand to one, because it's just it's not worth doing. None of none of this stuff is proprietary. None of this stuff is patented. None of the stuff you know if it's trademark, trademark's just naming. It has nothing to do with the product itself. You can trademark a, a particular uh, rose that's not a patented rose, and you can trademark it, and you can call it you know Joe Blow's rose, and no one else can sell it as Joe Blow's rose, but they can sell the same flower, and it's kind of like that. So whenever you are trying to buy something on Amazon, and it is a, a product, especially out of the electronics world, technology world, etc., and, and you, you know that product is a good product, if you can find one that looks exactly the same and specs exactly the same, it probably came from the same factory. I literally have a stack of boxes going out the door to one place and a stack of boxes going out the side to the other. What you don't know is how good is the support of the vendor. But that, if you check FakeSpot with your reviews, fakespot.com, drop any Amazon item in, you'll find out if the reviews are real. And if you look at the reviews, and the reviews are generally positive, especially as they pertain to needing support, 
you're going to be good. And as long as it's a product that you can return, so certain batteries and stuff like that are hard to return with Amazon. As long as it's a product you can remember, it's Amazon. So if they screw you, you screw them back. So don't be afraid to take that step. But all of the all of the alternatives that I gave you today, all of them have the same exact lead time of shipping. So there's another thing. When you see everything in a product category, all saying we're shipping this stuff in, in, in two, three weeks versus two days, they're probably not. Again, unless you live in Sheboyganville or something like that. I don't know how this is playing out for people in smaller markets. But for me in this market here, this big market, nothing is really taking me much longer. In fact, I've had stuff that like, I go out and my wife's put it in the garage or whatever, and I'm like, oh, that's here. She's like, that was here last week. And I'm like, at first, I didn't even bother to check and see if it had arrived because I didn't expect it to be here. And now I'm like, yeah. Uh, for instance, I ordered nails for one of my pneumatic nail guns, um, a finishing nailer. And it said something like three weeks, and they were here in two days. Just Just so you know. The other way you can support us is become a member of the MSB. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on members to do that. And remember, uh, until the COVID lockdowns are lifted, whatever I, and I still haven't figured out what I mean by that, but it's, it's definitely still locked down enough that I'm keeping in place. You can get MSB for half price, which is $25 a year. Just use the discount code 25 bucks, 25 bucks to get the discount. With that, let's go ahead and wrap up with our song of the day. Song of the day today is Glass Onion. By the Beatles. Why? Because it's Beatles week. Yep. Even though we had a rewind yesterday and we missed a Beatles song, there will be four great Beatles songs today. And there will be songs that are less known Beatles songs. You know, the, the, the really big ones everybody knows. And this is one of those songs. This is an interesting song to me because it's a song about nothing, but it has a bunch of symbolism in it. And all the symbolism actually is about things. But when you add all those things together, they don't mean anything. And this was uh, straight out of John Lennon's playbook. He really kind of found it funny that there were so many of his people that followed his music, both fans and critics, that tried to read into the symbolism of the music and make things out of it that really weren't. Uh, they, they just had, there had to be something there. So he would make up some really ridiculous, nonsensical songs that didn't mean anything. And this was like one of his best. A glass onion, by the way, is a casket you bury somebody in with a, a see-through top. Like you bury like you know a dictator in, and everybody's paying him homage when they put him in the ground, and everybody can see him. That's a glass thing. A walrus is a, a slang for a person's dead, and he says that Paul is the walrus because there was a myth going around at the time that Paul really wasn't Paul anymore because Paul died, and there was a whole bunch of crap like that that was just spun into this song. But all of the cryptic sounding shit actually does represent something. Again, it's just like it's having like. Uh, a cipher with a whole bunch of numbers that mean other numbers, and then when you take all those numbers and put them together, they just don't mean anything. So it's it's a it's a nonsensical song with actual symbolism in it to mess with fans, which is kind of cool. And it actually sounds like a really cool song too. So it's got a great sound to it. Uh, but here you go, Glass Onion by the Beatles, and with that, it's been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. 